Hello and welcome to Third Times a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third film in a franchise. And welcome to October on the Cage Club Podcast Network, where we're celebrating Halloween all month long. I'm your host, Mike Myers. Today, I'll be looking at the infamous Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, from 1982, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. This is a movie I was not going to cover for quite some time, but thanks to hashtag Season 1 Forever, I decided to make this review part of the network-wide celebration of all things scary. I'm talking about the best holiday there is. Praise be Samhain. It's All Hallows' Eve, or simply Halloween. Joining me to go trick-or-treating, our Cage Club co-founder and all-around great ghoul, Joey Boo Wendowski, as well as first-time guest Dan Cologne, a.k.a. Dan of the Dead Cologne. This month marks the release of the 11th Halloween movie in the 40-year history of the franchise, so a few shows on the network are watching movies in the series. Please check out Nick Jenkinstein's Monster over on Real Bad Podcast to get their thoughts about this very movie, Halloween 3. Even though there may be worse movies in this series, none are anywhere as well known for being bad, nor stick out like a sore thumb the way H3SOTW does. That's Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Uh, So that'll be sort of like a Mirror Mirror episode of some type, kind of like when Real Bad and Cinemakers both covered The Dark Knight Returns in the same month. So you can check out that episode of Real Bad Podcast Halloween 3 Season of the Witch on October 15th. Also, be sure to tell your mother you're going to sleep over Brian's house for a screening of the one that started it all, the classic Halloween, directed by John Carpenter, starring Scream Queen Jamie Lee Curtis. Brian, or excuse me, Late Night, uh, might have to pull some babysitting duties as well as hosting the slumber party, but as you know, it's always a blast. That show is on October 5th, so don't forget your sleeping bag. Uh, New on this episode, we play Plot Roulette, even though it's not officially called out by name, but check for more of that in the future, possibly, maybe. So now, without further ado, put on your masks, huddle close to the television, and get ready for the Silver Shamrock. Happy Halloween, guys. Happy Halloween. It's October. Very excited to talk about this movie, Halloween 3. Joining me today, back from Episode 1, Superman 3, good friend and Cage Club co-founder, Joey Lewandowski. Welcome back. Hello, 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 hello. How have you been since Superman 3? It's been, it's been a long time. I've been good. I, I like that you're asking, like, we haven't recorded, you and me, like, 150 podcasts since then, but I've been good. But, yeah, it's not as if we recorded, you know, last night, what, like, eight hours ago or something. I saw you. Yep. But thank you for coming back for Halloween 3. Sure. T- trick or treat. Okay, pumpkin, witch, or skeleton? Pumpkin. Okay, cool. Now, joining me for the first time, very excited here, Dan Cologne. Hello and welcome to Third Time's a Charm. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, back when this show was broken up into different seasons, season three was going to be the horror season, and I was going to invite Dan to be sort of the unofficial co-host of the horror season. I don't know if you knew that you were (laughs) semi-committed to all those episodes. 
Well, yeah, I remember um, I saw the the list that you uh, you shared with everybody, and I was I just signed up for a bunch. It wasn't planned. I just thought, oh, I love that one. I love that one. I love that one. I love that one. And it just sort of happened. You're always welcome to to find somebody else, give somebody else a chance if you want to. But uh, I'd be happy to be the unofficial co-host. I definitely want you back for lots of the horror stuff. You're probably one of the biggest horror buffs that I know right now. Would you say that that's your favorite genre at the moment? I would say, yeah, pretty consistently. I mean, I love all kinds of things, but horror is sort of my, um, it's like a warm blanket. You know, I always come back to horror. It's probably my most watched genre for sure. Awesome. So pumpkin, witch, or skeleton, what mask do you want? Oh, I go with pumpkin all the way. I'm actually drinking a LaCroix in a a jack-o'-lantern koozie as we speak. Yeah. Very nice. I like that. Very thematic. Wait, Mike, what are you? If we're both pumpkins, what are you? Yeah, see, I was going to go for the skeleton mask. I like it. There's something something about it. I, I love, don't get me wrong, I love jack-o'-lanterns. I love pumpkins, but they're they're everywhere. I love carving them. I just thought I'd mix it up with the skeleton mask. Maybe I'll wear, like, the girl at the end of this. She's on a skateboard with a ballerina costume and a skeleton mask on or a pumpkin mask. Maybe I'll go that route. Maybe dress up like a cowboy but wearing a skeleton mask. So, yeah, I'll go in that way. All right, well, here we are for Halloween 3. This movie has a reputation, one that I wasn't aware of for a while, to be quite honest with you. But let's get into the first segment here that I'd like to do, just ask you guys a little bit about the history with this franchise. Joey, as returning guest, if you don't mind going first, when did you first see this movie? What is your relationship with the Halloween franchise? How many have you seen? I've only seen the first three and resurrection i think because i saw resurrection because there's a film club that joe two and i run my co-host joe two on four or five podcasts whatever he loves resurrection because it's terrible and so he picked that last year so i saw that last year i watched this one for the first time a couple years ago when how did this get me did it because they said this is a terrible movie and i was like oh no i love this movie i've only seen this movie twice now i saw it for that and i saw it for this i've seen the first one a handful of times i love the first one and i've only seen the second one twice now i rewatched one and two to watch this even though i know the irony of that is that like this has nothing to do with those movies that this is a movie universe in which and we'll get to this i'm sure in which the first movie exists as a movie in this universe so i did not need to watch the first two for this but i did anyway uh, so i've seen this, the the second one twice once at Terror Tuesday down in Austin. So I think it was probably on 35mm. And then also here uh, in my house, I watched it again this week. So I've seen them, you know, I've seen the first one probably four or five times, seen the second one twice, this one twice, and Resurrection once. So, you know, I love this one and the first one, but... Like, this isn't a movie that I've watched every year for my entire life or anything like that. Like, I didn't grow up with it like I grew up with Superman in a way. Not Superman 3, but just Superman in general. It's just something that I, you know, I really enjoy but haven't seen a whole ton. Okay, so you've seen four out of... Well, at the time of this recording, there's 10. There's 10 movies in this franchise right now. The new one is coming out this year with Jamie Lee Curtis. It is a direct sequel to the original one. So basically, you just have to watch the first one and the new one. And as far as Hollywood's concerned right now, you're good. But okay, so you've got some ground to cover if you want to find out how crazy or how just like much crazier this franchise gets. Like, that's the thing. Like, I feel like people consider this like a bad movie, but like there are way worse Halloween movies in the franchise that we're not going to talk about tonight. Oh, also, speaking of, just real quick, talking about bad movies, there's another podcast on our network, Real Bad, who I just checked with the host, Nick Jenkins, and they're going to be covering this very movie on October 15th, so just in, you know, a little under two weeks from now. It's not only people like us who love this movie. There are people out there who think this is bad. I mean, there is, there's problems with it, for sure, and we're going to get to it's... I don't see any problems with it. Well... <laughs> So, Dan, tell me a little bit about your history with the Halloween franchise. Sure. 
college is really where my love of horror began. You know, I, once I got into college and started studying film, I opened myself up to all kinds of things. And horror wasn't really a thing I was into in high school. I saw Halloween. I, was, I, I sort of accumulated a couple of the, sort of the must-sees, Halloween and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, the classics. And for the longest time, that original Halloween movie was, was the one that I just kept coming back to. And then a few years ago, I took it upon myself to marathon the entire Halloween franchise over the course of a weekend. Whoa, that's okay. That is bold over the course of a weekend. I mean, I've tried to do stuff like the Pink Panther series and had to stop <laughs> before the end. And that was over the course of like two weeks. Right. Like, oh man, you really powered through this. Yeah, I think we started, uh, my girlfriend and I started on a Friday night and then we finished Sunday, sometime Sunday. One would end and we'd start the next one. We'd take breaks for the bathroom and, and for food. But yeah, we, we stacked them one on top of each other over the course of like two and a half days. It was It was intense. And I think that was the first time I had actually seen all of Halloween 3. Uh, I was aware of its reputation as being a, a terrible installment in the franchise. And I knew it had nothing to do with Michael Myers. I knew that uh, John Carpenter wanted to turn the Halloween franchise into sort of an anthology franchise where every Halloween it would be a new Halloween-based story. And then with this film, it, that whole idea tanked and they came back with Michael Myers part four. So that was the first time I had really seen it. And I got to say that when you put it in context, when you watch them all in close proximity, you know, Halloween three is really not bad at all. Sure. I, it has some problems, like you said, but I think that it's a highlight of this franchise for sure. When you consider where the franchise went after this, you know, I, I think it was kind of a slog getting through the rest of the franchise after three. I I mean, H2O was, was a little better than a lot of the rest of them. But I look back on it afterward and I thought, man, Halloween 3 was like the high watermark after that first movie. And then, you know, the rest is just a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of garbage in there. So I don't think it's bad at all. And I think that if the idea had taken off, we could have ended up with a really amazing Halloween franchise. But because people just didn't jump on that bandwagon when it came out, you know, we ended up with a pretty weak franchise overall. I think my initial criticism of trying to do an anthology series is you you want to start mixing it up with the second movie, not the third movie. Like, the problem was Halloween 2 was a direct sequel to the first one. Like, it's almost a part two. Yeah, it just picks up exactly where the first one leaves off. Like, it's basically Halloween 1 more. Right. Right. It's one long movie. Right. Essentially. It can be viewed that way. And so it's too bad they just didn't differentiate it. But yeah, well, you, got, you can't really go with part three. I understand you want to take it in new directions and stuff, but I feel like that was just way too bold of a direction. It's a great idea. I love it, too, because I love just anthology horror stuff like Tales from the Crypt and, you know, Tales from the Dark Side and other types of tales um, <laughs> that are out there. And, you know, I think they knew it too. Like, they started running it back into the ground with, like, you know, the return of Michael Myers. They started a whole new storyline with him and then they had to sort of soft reboot it again with H2O and bring Jamie Lee Curtis back. Then they reboot it with Rob Zombie a few films after that. Now they're rebooting it again. So it's always sort of had issues along the way and it's funny because they're like oh michael myers is what it's known for but it's also what isn't really making it work so well along the way i saw this movie a long time ago like i think i was in high school and i had no idea it was connected to the halloween franchise because i think i missed like the opening 
credits. So I didn't understand, you know, that it was even called Halloween three or anything. And I was just watching like this crazy horror movie one night. And I thought it was like really creepy and scary because like it was targeting children and it was all about how like TV rots your brain. And it just like really hit me because I was like young and hadn't seen a lot of horror stuff. I hadn't seen a lot of Halloween movies even. This is the one franchise, I guess, as far as horror is concerned, where I came to extremely late. Growing up, I was always like a Freddy fan because he was funny and I was allowed to go see the Freddy movies with my brother. I liked Jason because he was actually scary and, you know, he was like a Frankenstein kind of old school, almost like a universal monster or something. So I didn't really get to the Halloween franchise until like after high school, before college, somewhere around that that point. And yeah, I, I love the first one. I think the first one's like a masterpiece. Like you watch that, the, the camera work is just incredible. It's like one of the first Steadicam films, you know, there's like a brand new technology that was created. If you think about it, it's Rocky, The Shining, and Halloween. And I think there's like a Hal Ashby movie. They're like the first Steadicam films. And it's just incredible that it's in that pantheon of movies. You know, it can be mentioned in in name with those other filmmakers and be like, yeah, it belongs there. And so it's a little discouraging that the rest of the franchise kind of like peters out. The newer ones, when they redo it, are always entertaining and stuff, but it's just tough. I feel like Michael Myers has sort of been spent to a degree. So that's why I really like this movie. I feel like there's a lot of flaws here, but ultimately I give it a lot of credit for doing something different, trying to be original, and I like the idea of it branching out the franchise in that way and saying like, it's not called Michael Myers. It's called Halloween. It's about the day and it's not about one particular person or family or something. So I really enjoy this movie. I'm glad we're all sort of on the same page. I mean, it'll be interesting to, to listen to this and then listen to Real Bad and see two wildly different perspectives. So that's pretty cool about crossovers. Well, yeah, I mean, basically when I was talking to Nick yesterday about it, I, I got the sense from him that he doesn't think it's bad. Like, I think we all are in agreement, you know, the three of us here and also him, that there are worse Halloween movies. I think this just has the reputation of being, quote-unquote, the bad one, and I think he just thinks it's weird, because it is weird. Like, there's no way to see that this isn't weird. Like, this is definitely a weird movie, especially in comparison to the first two, like we were saying before. I hope that they find joy in it, because they do that sometimes on their show, but, you know, because there is a lot to enjoy here. I think it all depends sort of on the expectation you have going in. If you think it's going to be more Michael Myers, you're going to be disappointed, but if you just want to see like a weird creepy movie with like a an infectious earworm of a song like this is exactly what you want to watch yeah i think the halloween 3 is is really only bad by virtue of the fact that it was included in a franchise that it doesn't really belong in you know if that idea had taken off sure it would have been great but you know because it didn't now it's this oddball in a franchise filled with michael myers and it's the one without him you know so it's really only bad because it is a halloween movie you know if it had been titled anything else if it had just been season of the witch would have been fantastic. So I don't think it's truly bad. I think it's just disappointing might be the better word. I don't think it's bad. I think it's disappointing depending on what your expectations are for it. I also feel like it's a little misguided. Like part of what I like about it is its charm. Like it's really trying and gets having fun and doing something scary and original and stuff. And to a degree, like I like a lot of it. Like, I really love the music. I really love the way this looks, but you can't deny that some of this acting is pretty terrible. And while, like, some of the plot twists or, you know, elements here seem terrible, I really love that kind of thing. Like, okay, so example, 
how much the Shamrock and Ireland is now associated with Halloween for me. This movie did that, and I don't know, like, it doesn't make any sense to me, but little things like that, I love that kind of thing. And I feel like that's the kind of thing people look at and are like, well, that's stupid, like, that makes no sense, that's dumb. But to me, like, that is trying something that is sort of saying, like, Halloween isn't just about trick-or-treating. We're trying to get back to, like, when it was more considered, like, in literature to be, like, a maybe, like, a pagan ritual or something, and, like, even further back, like, I'm getting, like, Lovecraft vibes from this and them trying to summon, like, an old one or something. So for me, it's crazy <laughs> and it's jarring and stuff, but it's why I keep rewatching it. It's like, I love that very quirky elements. Oh, for sure. I love the, the supernatural aspect of this. You know, every other movie doesn't have that. You know, they're sort of slasher, standard slashers. And, and you could argue Michael Myers is supernatural and that he can't die. But, you know, you have actual legit magic happening in this movie, something that none of the rest have. And I kind of love it for that. So I'm with you. I love this sort of mythology of it, the Irish sort of pagan shit that's going on in this. I think it's a really fun change of pace. And I really em- embrace th- those elements in this film. So I guess, should we just quickly try and go through like the plot somehow? This is something like, I feel like Joey and I overlooked a lot in some of our shows and stuff. I want to try and like bring this back though, somehow. Does anyone want to try and attempt just like briefly explain what's going on in this movie? Well, I could start it off. There's a doctor who loves to fuck. And he is, I guess, divorced or separated from his wife and his kids. And he becomes like a superhero detective. He's got his nurse or doctor sort of side piece who also becomes a detective. Like, I don't know what is going on, but this guy, Tom Atkins, I love this guy. So this movie is maybe hashtag problematic in the sense that uh, he's kind of creepy to everybody he meets. He goes on this adventure to sort of find out why this woman's father died or was killed and within like six hours of meeting her beds her and it's her choice like it doesn't feel empowering it feels strange but i love it because this movie commits to this idea that this guy is irresistible with really nothing to back it up like there's no justification for why everybody wants to jump his bones they just do oh come on joey that mustache is sexy as fuck I guess the mustache is true. You don't think the booze breath is doing half the job either? Maybe. Like, this guy is a lush. Like, he is, especially in the book, like, he is a drunk and a half, this guy. But you know what I think is interesting? We were just talking about this. While we were recording or between recording our Mandy episode of Cage Club Revisited last night, which will be out on the network in a couple weeks, was this movie really starts with, like, a change of... POV. You know what I mean? Like, we're following a guy who's running from something, right? And we don't know who or what he is, who or what he's running from. And then, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the movie, he's killed. And it reminded me, in that sense, a lot of It Follows, which is another uh, recent movie that I don't think has a lot to do with this, but that movie kicks off with a girl we don't know running down the street from something, some unknown terror, and then, you know, a minute later we smash cut to her just, you know, dismembered and brutally murdered on the beach. And I like that. I think you're trained as a movie watcher to think that that is this guy's movie, but it's not. He's just a victim in this, you know, Silver Shamrock ploy. He almost gets psychoed out of the movie, right? See, it's like a good use of that sort of classic horror stuff where the misdirection, the red herring sort of thing. And it's also setting up the uh, malevolent intent that's going on behind it all. Like, you know, these weirdos, these what we end up finding out are robots. 
that is insane, like that whole concept that they turn out to be automatons and all that stuff. Okay, so you did a pretty good job of explaining like the first like 10 minutes, maybe. <laughs> it's like this guy gets chased into a hospital and is killed by someone who then sets himself on fire. It's all witnessed by the doctor who then meets the daughter of the victim. And she's like, oh, my dad owned this novelty store. He was going to pick up an order of masks. He's basically chased back. He was found by these guys. They killed him. And why? Together, they go to the manufacturing plant of these masks to try and figure out what happened to her father and what it has to do with these masks. Dan, you want to try and take it from there and see if you could <laughs> do a few beats? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the rest of the movie is a pretty solid little sort of detective mystery thriller. There's this, like, this weird little Irish hamlet in the middle of nowhere. It's like little Ireland right there. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I love that little town. Like, it's just sort of like it could be anywhere. But it's like it's like all these people live in this bubble and they're isolated from everything else. I don't know. I, I really dug all the little Irish touches and... So, yeah, then Tom Atkins sort of figures out that there's something up with these masks. The woman who's in the room next to them in that little motel, they find her, you know, dead because of a, quote, misfire, whatever the hell that means. And she gets taser-faced, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of my absolute favorite sequences in that film. Which also, just just real quick, feels way more brutal and graphic and violent than anything in the first two movies. Like, yes. this is next-level gore, next-level makeup. I mean, you know, Michael Myers stabs and kills a bunch of people, he's got some creative kills in the first two movies, but, like, this is, I think, way more visually disgusting than anything we see in either of the first two movies. Yeah, for sure. And I, I love the makeup job on her face. It's just, oh, it's so gross and wonderful. There's like a cover up, you know, Tom Atkins sees these guys show up and, you know, it's all very hush hush. We don't want to talk about what's going on. So as he starts to investigate more and get inside the, the factory, he starts to uncover some secrets. What's the name of the actor? The, uh, the old man from RoboCop. Oh, Cochran, the guy who plays Cochran. Dan O'Hurlihy. Cochran, yeah. He meets Cochran, and I guess I mean, we could sort of skip ahead, but he learns that Cochran is this guy who's trying to bring about some kind of new order by way of uh, ancient pagan magic involving Stonehenge, <laughs> and they're channeling the magic of Stonehenge, putting it into these masks, and in his whole monologue, you find out he's going to kill a bunch of children, which is crazy, as some sort of grand sacrifice. So then it becomes, how do we stop Cochran from doing that? Yeah, and that's that's basically the movie, in a nutshell. It's really crazy, though, like, when you say it out loud and stuff, it does sound completely ridiculous, the idea that there's these ancient Irish people making Halloween masks for children in order to have, like, this mass genocide, basically. Like, they're going to wipe out all the children on the planet? This is some sacrifice. Like, this is insane kind of stuff. Like, I can't believe what this builds to, but I'm so with it all the way to the end. Because I feel like it's like an onion, you know? Yes. Like, it does a good job of prepping you more and more as it goes. There's still some things about it I can't quite put my finger on, like, with the third and fourth viewing, but man, like, like I can never, especially, like, the first and second time I watched this movie, like, I can't tell where it's gonna go, what it's gonna do, what it wants to be. It's great like that. It just keeps me guessing. Yeah, it seems like when they were writing this film, it's like every time you sort of know where the story's going, they make a left turn. So yeah, the first time I saw this, I had no idea what the hell was going to happen. And even now, even now, as I watch it, it's still fun to just let the movie take me where it wants to go. And, and, and I know where it's going to go, but it, it still feels fresh every single time I watch it because these choices, the, you know, these narrative choices, it's not conventional. 
by any means, which I love about it. You know, so every time I get to watch it, it's always fun to just go with those left turns and be surprised. Definitely. Yeah. I really like some of the themes going on in this movie. Like I mentioned briefly how TV rots your brain, but there's like this weird sort of thing going on where it's like technology is bad for people, but Cochran's going to use robots and stuff (laughs) with his magic to, like, destroy people and everything. Like, I just love how it's so sort of committed to everything. Like, it doesn't matter if it's contradictory. It doesn't care about that. Like, (laughs) I don't know. It feels fresh for some reason when I think about it. Yeah, I just love that whole idea that they're trying to get at where they're basically saying, like, the villain of this movie is saying, like, Halloween's a bad thing, like, what it's turned into. Like, it's not supposed to be for kids because it's, like, turned them soft and made them greedy and expect handouts and all this thing. He's like, we have to get back to what Halloween meant when I was a kid, which is ritualistic human sacrifice basically (laughs) he's like we were wicker people back in the day (laughs) like the wicker man that's kind of what i imagine his society was like where where he grew up um and he's trying to bring that over here to the new world like what is his end goal really to end humanity yeah i don't think it's totally clear what the sacrifice is specifically for Because if his goal is successful, it seems like their goal is to get a mask for every kid in America. And obviously they're just showing us the kids who have them. But toward the end of the movie, it seems like every kid in America has a mask. And jumping ahead to the very, very end, we don't know if Tom Atkins' mission is successful in stopping this from happening or not. The movie ends without us knowing. So on the one hand, maybe he's successful and everything's fine. But on the other hand, maybe there's no more kids in the world or in America. Like It just feels like Mm -hmm. in which case then people just had to recreate everything like i don't know i kind of like the opaque villainy of it all but i also wish that we're like that we even got like one line like here's what i want to do or whatever yeah there's definitely stuff in the book cochran has a little bit more of an explanation of his motivation he has a bit of a bond villain moment in the book but it doesn't really explain a whole lot more the way i saw it was it's like an apocalypse. It's like a full-blown end-of-the-world scenario, and that didn't really sink in for me until, like, the third time I watched this movie. At the end of, like, the first and second time, I was just kind of like, well, this is weird. I'm freaked out. Like, it's kind of an ambiguous thing. Like, is everybody going to get killed? Are they going to stop the commercial in time? Is this happening all around the world? And then the last time I watched it for this, I was like, oh, no, this is like a full-on, like, end-of-days kind of thing that he's bringing up. He may as well be summoning one of the old ones or something because, like, basically what's happening is he's using like the magic of Stonehenge (laughs) combined with television to turn children into like bugs and deadly snakes and all kinds of like disgusting little critters and things and then those things are going to go and attack the parents and kill them so yeah he's trying to call like the whole world or something he's wiping them out I don't know if the scope of that is portrayed properly because that is some epic shit right there. I do want to say, though, that this is like an incredible job of their marketing team. Like they are ridiculously successful in selling these masks, it seems like. Yeah, it it almost seems strange. They only have three options, only three masks, and every child in the world wants them. I don't don't know why. And doesn't seem bothered by the fact that, like, you know, out of every three kids you see on the street, one is going to basically look like you. I also wonder, like, I want to get into the economics, like the business of this, and I want to know, like, how much these masks cost. Because I feel like, is he making money on killing kids? Is he selling them at a loss just to kill kids? You know, are they cheap? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, like, what would he need the money for once everyone in the world is dead? Unless there's like a part 
two to his plan where he's able to like sell some kind of like revitalization medicine or something. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Use the other powers of Stonehenge to like cure some people. Exactly. Well, well, he's never going to get the chance to try because he gets like obliterated at the end of this movie. Like he makes the mistake of standing in a circle of television screens playing the Silver Shamrock commercial, and then a laser like shoots out of Stonehenge and circles all the TVs and like fries them into nothingness. So so much for Cochrane. He's never going to see the end of his plan. That to me is, you know, the biggest loss. <laughs> yeah, that's some serious cult shit. Along the way, there's just so many what the hell is going on kind of moments. And like with the rest of the Halloween movies, like we were saying, like they're so predictable. They tried to do stuff where Michael Myers was looking for his niece. And I think there was some kind of cult that brought him back to life with actual magic. And like, you know where I'm going? Like they're going, they tried to actually get more supernatural and bizarre with it. And it just didn't work. They had it here. I feel like if they had just had more options to explore this further or with more money or, you know, another sort of anthology, I can only imagine how, how much crazier like part four could have been. I mean, is the first twist in the Halloween franchise that Laurie, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, is his sister? Like, that's the first actual thing that, like, you sort of don't expect, right? Right. Yeah, that's in part two, right? Yeah. And I wonder, because I know that that, you know, from what I was reading, I know that that sort of diverts, and that's not even true as you get further into the franchise. But I wonder if that's something that was always planned from the beginning, or when they were making the second one, they were like, we need something that people are going to talk about. Oh, she's his sister. You know what I mean? I wonder if that's always, like, do you guys know, was that always planned or is that something that they just came up with while making that movie? I'm not sure. I actually would like to know if that was originally planned or not. Yeah, I don't know either, really. But that is kind of like a stroke of inspiration if you think about it, right? It's like, it's what starts sort of like expanding that universe. Being like, oh, they're connected. Like, there's more to it than just randomness. Like, he has a motive now, you know, builds his character. There's a lot of competition out there. Like, Jason was getting a new mask and like then like there's just all these changes and it just feels like they never found a way to change michael myers enough or make him more original i don't know what you could have done he could you know couldn't really change his mask or his look he was pretty much locked in the idea of connecting him to laurie making them kin of some kind that's about as far as they ever got for me because that's what they went back to down the line they had him searching for his niece in a couple of the movies so they really leaned into the family values of it what I think is kind of interesting or weird or telling, maybe, is that I always, in my mind, and I'm sure that it's true for a lot of people, I don't know if it's true for everybody, but in my mind, I compare this franchise with the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street franchises. For sure. Yeah. And of the three, I don't particularly like the first Nightmare movie, and I don't think the first Friday the 13th movie is very good. I think I've maybe seen one other Friday the 13th movie, but I've seen all the Nightmare sequels, and I really like all of them kind of more. I mean, I don't know all of them, but like I like a lot of them more than the original. Here, it feels like they started at such a great height and then just couldn't... Like, are there any other genuinely good Halloween movies after the first one? I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I know a lot of people who really like 4, 5, and 6, where they delve into more of, like, the cult of Michael Myers. Yeah, that's a little trilogy, right? 4, 5, and 6 is sort of its own right. little trilogy in there. We might have to do part 6 one day, since it's a part 3, in, in fact. Right. I'm not one of those people, though I keep trying. I know a lot of people who really love them, and I just I never could get on board with them. And I think it's because 
you know, for me, the great thing about Michael Myers as a character is, you know, the mystery of him. You know, you don't know anything other than, you know, he grew up in Haddonfield and maybe Laurie's his sister, right? And then those movies tried to give him more backstory. There's more like this legend of Michael Myers. It's like stuff. I just, I feel like they, they tried to expand on him as a character and he's just not an interesting enough character to support all that stuff. And it always felt really ridiculous. Like, oh, come on. Well, also, like, I kind of, you know, personally, I don't know if I want to know more about a serial killer. I'd rather have him be this sort of vague, menacing guy right. that we don't know anything about. Like, that's why he's scary. If you know him, you sort of run the risk of him becoming like a tragic or sympathetic figure, kind of, which is, I guess, interesting. But in terms of where they started from, this guy, this, you know, seemingly unstoppable killer, like, you don't want to make him likable. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly why I didn't care for Rob Zombie's take on, on Halloween, because it was all backstory. The whole first half of that movie, it's like tragic backstory. And I really didn't care. You know, the best thing about him is the unknown. And the more you try to explain it, the worse it gets for me. I don't hate Rob Zombie's take on it. But I find it like a misfire, though, because if you think about someone like Jason Voorhees, right, like, I mean, for all of the horror and terror that, that he spreads, like, there's still that fact that he was a little boy who was learning impaired that the counselors basically let drown. So, like, there's that sympathy, really. I'm on Jason's side a lot of the times because I hate, like, the kids that are basically, like, trespassing on his property and everything. And it's just crazy how Rob Zombie kind of tried that in a way where it's like, you got to get on the side of Michael Myers a little bit. But like ultimately in that movie, it's like, I was very put off by how long we spent with the young Mike Myers and the way that I was supposed to believe that, you know, maybe he was going to turn into this mute brute when he grew up. What was there just didn't feel like it fit in league with where that movie ended up, which was basically the original movie. He ended up remaking the first Halloween and the, the second half of that movie. So it, it kind of felt all for naught. You know, I kind of wonder, your original idea years ago, Mike, that sort of in a way kind of became this, was to do a podcast about like remakes and reboots, right? Because I feel like if you're going to remake something, don't do it just shot for shot. Because like, that's just like a, a... Gus Van Sant it. Right. Like, that's just like an exercise in like, can you do it? I feel like if you're going to remake Halloween, I don't mind the... I also haven't seen it, so I can't really comment on it. But I, I feel like I don't mind the fact that like you change it up and try to give a backstory. Like, whether or not it works is a different story altogether. But I wonder, you know, as you're going through this podcast, you're sort of seeing conventions of like franchises trying to evolve or trying to improve or whatever. I wonder if what he did, what Rob Zombie did for his remake, in the grand scheme of remakes and reboots is a good thing or a bad thing. You know what I mean? Like whether, you know, I'm sure within the realm of the type of thing he did, there's probably good and bad examples. But I, I wonder if like the way that he executed his vision is, you know, like it's just sort of like a different kind of thing similar to Third Time to Charm. But you know what I mean? Like I, I wonder, like I don't mind the fact that he expands and tries to like give backstory. I don't know if it works, but you know, the idea behind it is cool. Yeah, I definitely don't mind the attempt. What I minded was the portrayal of young Michael Myers and his family life because the basically the one shot we get of young Michael Myers in the first Halloween he's from like an affluent family like they're upper middle class you know like his sister's the babysitter and whatever and like yeah we don't know any reason why but he takes a knife out of the drawer and kills his sister and and her boyfriend and then it was just like the new one made him into trailer park trash and stuff and it's just like oh come on like it's it's just too obvious or something to me I would it's not as interesting as trying to see how this sort of young maybe like 10 or 12 year old boy who has it all you know from a privileged society and everything like that's the that's what Carpenter was sort of trying to get at um, and I think Carpenter knew like we've done it all we can with this character in the first movie because he never came back to direct
direct another one, you know? He pretty much kind of just, like, stayed away from this franchise and went and did more interesting things. Actually, I have a question about that. So, like, in the opening credits to this movie, John Carpenter is credited as music by. Is it just because they're using his theme, or did he actually contribute to this? I think he, he was a contributing composer to the film, I think. Yeah, he still, did, he still did music. He still wrote part two. He says he wrote it drunk one night, like, in a night. But, he yeah, like, he'll contribute as producer and things, but he'll never get back behind the camera and, and yell action. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because this soundtrack is great like i love the music here he's just great at atmospheric music in general and synth music and all that kind of thing and like it really fits well into the way this movie's shot like it's shot like a lot of like long still shots of basically empty stuff like there's a lot of empty shots in this but i I don't know they're really effective and creepy yeah i agree and he worked with alan howarth on this as well. He, he's a frequent collaborator with Carpenter. I know they worked together on Big Trouble in Little China and a handful of other Carpenter films. And I think, yeah, I think the music in this is, is really brilliant. And you're, and you're right. In a lot of those empty shots, it, it's what keeps that this movie going, you know, that keeps the, you on your toes. And I think it's a, one of Carpenter's best scores for sure. And I definitely feel like it's overlooked too. Like that's a problem with people just going along with popular opinion and hearing that this is the worst movie or a bad movie or something. They're just, they're not even going to look or hear for like what is positive about the movie. Also, in talking about music, we have to talk about the Silver Shamrock song, which, I mean, come on. Oh my god. I mean, they've taken London Bridge and they've perverted it to no end. There's a beautiful line in the book that describes the song, and I have to read it now. I have to do a little preemptive book club for everybody right now, okay? But you have to just hear how this music is described. Silver Shamrock. At last, the advertising jingle wound down, followed immediately by a few bars of what sounded like Madison Avenue's idea of an Irish jig. (laughs) Then that, too, faded with a syrupy sea of characteristless middle-of-the-road orchestral pop music washed over everything once more. It was a thick, black-blue sound, like bow bells muffled by fog. It fell softly on the ears, demanding nothing but passive consumption. It was the music of merciful oblivion. I like that. That's pretty awesome. Now, Mike, I told you last night I was keeping track of... I want to see if we have the same count. I I kept track of how many times you hear the song, see the commercial sort of in every iteration. Okay, cool, cool. Do you have a number? Because I have a number. Okay, what do you got? I got numbers. I have... So, in total, of all variations, I have nine. Really? Yeah. I have... In total, I think I got 12. Maybe I missed a few, but I have, of the preview commercial, like how many days on Halloween, I see, I heard four, I saw four on TV, one on the radio. There was the one commercial that played the morning of Halloween, like, it's Halloween, it's Halloween, it's Halloween, like, come back tonight. And then I have three more, like, the actual trigger, I hear, I saw it twice on TV, and then once in the studio. Like, there's the the one that they prep for that when they kill the kid, the annoying little kid. There's the one that they actually send out, and then they have the one in the studio that we hear as the scientists get killed. But I think I got nine. Maybe I missed some. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I because I think what I had was I had 10 on the actual TV. I didn't mark exactly when. And at the end, they kind of, he's switching the channel. So I think I count, I might have counted that more than once uh, instead of one. But here's what I caught. This was my favorite bit. The bum is singing it. Mm. He's singing the Halloween song. He's singing one more day till Halloween, 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 as he's walking down the alley. That was my favorite Two more days to Halloween. 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 
this time around. I don't think I caught that. I'll have to look for that next time I watch it. But here's the point. There's no accurate count. I truly believe everyone could watch this movie and have a different count because this song just fucks with your mind. Like, it just fucking fucks with your mind. Oh, yeah. My girlfriend and I were singing it for, you know, like an hour after the movie was over. It just gets in your head. And I think that it's probably not in the movie anywhere near as much as I think it is, but it's just a testament to that song. It just permeates <laughs> that whole movie. Like I mentioned, it is, it's the melody of London Bridge, but... Sure. It's got like that the like the beep boop bop boop beep boop stuff underneath it you know and which i wonder if carpenter did that too if he was responsible for the silver shamrock theme and was just like i'm gonna just fuck with these guys as hard as possible and give them the most annoying thing i can think of um and then the director's voice is the guy so that's tommy lee wallace saying um hey kids don't forget after the fright night feature whatever like sit down in front of the tv that's the actual director getting in on the fun. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about Tommy Lee Wallace? This is his directorial debut. He was Michael Myers for parts of the original Halloween. Was going to direct part two. He was supposed to. I, I think you could be right about that. I'm not totally sure. But uh, yeah, this is his first time in the director's chair. And like it just if I didn't know, I would say this looks like a John Carpenter film. You know, I think he does such a great job of keeping this movie consistent stylistically with everything else in the franchise, at least the first couple. It even looks like other Carpenter films, though. Like, that's what I like. Yeah, I was thinking about it later, and I thought that tonally, this is more consistent with John Carpenter's work in the years that came after than... Prince of Darkness stuff. Yes. I look at the original Halloween, and I don't see a ton of Carpenter as I, you know, when I think of John Carpenter, stylistically anyway, I think of, you know, Big Trouble, Little China, The Thing, Escape from New York. Yeah, I think that this Halloween 3 stylistically is more consistent with those than that original Halloween film. And uh, I think it's a testament to Tommy Lee Wallace, to you know, who had never directed before, that he was able to pull that off and blur those lines. Yeah, that first Halloween movie is almost an experimental film with like Steadicam only kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like, it, that is kind of cool. Like, this does look, remind me of Carpenter stuff, which, you know, makes me think like this is a pretty great debut film for someone's first movie. Like, you know, he almost pulls it off, like, all the way. Like, there's just so much about it that is fun, and what doesn't work is still, like, cool ideas. Like, even if they're not well executed, like, he's still got, like, really cool ideas of what he, of what he wants and how he wants to portray things. So, um, especially, like, when, uh, when Marge gets laser-faced. Yeah. Kudos to that for that sequence. And, and just the imagery of, like, the snakes crawling out of the masks of the kid's head and everything. Like, that stuff is just really cool. Yeah, I think that the faults of this movie are not with his direction, that's for sure. He did also write the script, though. So I guess we can hang some of the blame on him for the, the narrative problems. Okay, all right, yeah. I mean, John Carpenter got, uh, he's uncredited as a writer, and there's a third uncredited uh, or second uncredited writer, but uh, Tommy Lee Wallace got the script credit. So I think some of the problems I have is, you know, like I wish Ellie as a character was more developed because this is really Tom Atkins' movie, you know, and all she gets to do is fuck him in the motel and then she gets turned into a robot. You know, she doesn't really have a whole lot of lot to do. Does she get turned into a robot or replaced with a robot? Oh, okay, here's my question. Was she always a robot? 
I don't think so. I don't think so. All right, then she was Westworld. She was replaced. She, I feel, at some point, when they kidnapped her and then he rescues her, she is then the robot. Because it feels like the physical reproduction of humans, like the actual creation is, like it feels like early iteration of Westworld, sort of. Like before we even see it on the show, like, because they look the part, they sort of act the part, but the personality is not there. They're basically Terminators. Like there's no dimension to their characters. Like if you compare her before she gets replaced to like, you know, the security guards that kill the guys early on that, you know, Tom Atkins fights later on. There's a huge swath. So I don't think that unless she's like a way later iteration, in which case, you know, Cochran seems to have all the money in the world, I feel like would have replaced the security guards too, so that they could maybe talk their way out of something instead of just punching their way out of something. I feel like she is a human to a certain point and then is replaced. But I don't I also don't know what happens to to her. Does she I guess she just gets killed and like off screen and just dumped somewhere. Yeah, that's why I wasn't I wasn't sure if she was some sort of advanced prototype or something because later we see Cochrane has like all these sort of other things that he's made and he had that lady knitting and she was an ultra complicated sort of automaton like made of gears and things. So I, I don't know. It's just something that I liked to think about this time around. It's like, how can I justify her always being a robot? And then she got like back to the factory and they reset her and then he has like the mind wiped version of her now or whatever. But like, no. It's too bad because she's a really, she starts off as a super strong character. Like her introduction, she's like, you knew my dad. Something's going on. Let's go investigate right now. And then as soon as they get to town, she turns into like his floozy. It's really disappointing. Yeah, her narrative arc is like, it just tanks almost immediately. And I don't know why. I can't, I can't explain why. There's that really gratuitous shot of her getting out of the shower for literally no reason. Like, we're in the middle of another scene, and then we just cut to that shot, and then we cut back to the scene we were in. <laughs> it's like, I was like, what was that about? You know, we do get, though, you know, in terms of, I think we've talked about, I think other podcasts have talked about it on the network, especially, I think we've also talked about it, Mike, in terms of, like, equal representation nudity, I mean, we don't get any Tom Atkins dick, but we get a lot of his butt, like, we get a lot of his butt. Well, he's got a big ass. So. Yeah. But I do I do <laughs> feel like it's just one of those things, like, oh, it's a horror movie, we need to have some boobs in here, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I forgot until I rewatched it this week how much... I mean, it's not a ton, but there's a, there's a handful of scenes in the first Halloween where just girls are topless because it's like it's sort of what's expected. I feel you know what I mean. Like when Michael Myers kills his older sister, she's topless, or you know when the girl when they have sex in the bed, the babysitter, and then she gets killed, she's topless. I feel like it's just the expectation, like oh, we need to see boobs in this movie. Well, you never actually see PJ Soul's boobs in the first one. Are you sure? Because I just I just saw it this week, and I'm pretty sure you do, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it's implied. I, I'd have to rewatch it. But I'm almost I'm like 99% positive that it's implied. That's the thing about that first Halloween is that like there's almost no blood in that movie. There's almost no nudity. Like the only nudity is the sister in the first scene. So yeah, I think you imagined it. The power of movies. I think they Hitchcocked you, Joey. <laughs> they might have. I'm gonna find out. There's boob. There's boob. There's boob. Oh. You see a lot of her boobs. Okay, then I'm I am misremembering. I mean, it's not like overtly sexual. Like it's not like she's riding him and like she's she is always always sort of covered by like a shirt or by a sheet or by whatever. You know what I mean? But like there is nudity there, I think. And I don't think it's there for any reason other than it's a slasher film. Even if this is like the first slasher film, like this is just sort of, you know, it's what we've come to expect from the genre at least since then. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, right. This is just part and parcel with horror of the age is thematically, you know, kids, underage kids having sex or 
doing things that are illegal need to be punished and so like a lot of horror even before this i mean even back going back to like the blobs just the idea that juvenile delinquency um is gonna you know like if you're a juvenile delinquent like the blob is gonna get you or whatever if you're a kid like and you're not behaving or something it just i always feel like that has been part of horror and throughout the ages and stuff and yeah this definitely halloween like if it was some kind of mandate or something figured out a way to do it tastefully you know in a way at least like it's not in full view it's not in bright light you know she is partially covered up and all that kind of thing and thematically it's in league with what the movie's trying to say so this movie there's no need for any of the nudity in this movie because it is not part of the issue whatsoever (laughs) it's just because the doctor loves to fuck pretty much there's the really like groany sort of like them making out where she's wearing like lingerie and he's oh it's just like ugh. just thinking about it makes me want to yeah like why did she pack a teddy when she went to go find who killed her dad you know like the the logistics of that because of the mustache tan she saw she's like this is gonna happen see that's why i keep thinking she is luring the doctor there but what for what reason do they want to contain the doctor because he saw the robot blow himself up like who gives a shit no one believes him anyway like this guy is a drunk loser yeah. like why is he a priority for the silver shamrock corporation like and in like a day everyone's gonna be dead anyway just let this guy run around like the end of invasion of the body snatchers in traffic saying they're coming they're coming He'll either get hit by a car, and that's the end of him, or just, like, a snake's going to bite him in a week. It's fine. Like, just go about your business, Cochran. I just love the futility of that, though. Like, he's running around trying to save the world, and it's just, like, impossible. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we still get that moment at the end. Right. That's the best. Like, I guess, I mean, I re- as a kid, like, come on, there were, I remember more than just three channels as a kid. Like, there were definitely something like eight or ten. So, like, I got to laugh at the end. I mean, they're trying so hard to do that moment from Body Snatchers, but he's yelling into the phone, like, it's still on the third channel. You didn't take it off the third channel. Get it off the third also, channel. Also, who are you calling that has control over every network? That was my question, yeah. FCC, maybe? I guess, I don't know. And also, is he calling local stations? Like, does he think this is just happening locally? Or is he just saving whatever town he's in? But we see New York, Omaha, Seattle. Like, it's everywhere. Like, is he able to find... Number one, who is he calling? Number two, how widespread... Is this actually saving or trying to save? Like, I just, I like, I mean, I don't mind it because I think it's it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of like a Twilight Zone way to end it. You know what I mean? Like, he's so close and yet it's still like a futile effort. Wallace worked on the Twilight Zone. He did a couple episodes in the 85 series. So, like, this is pretty much kind of like, like, he went on to do a little anthology work after this, too. So, yes, but I do like that. I, I did wonder, like, did Silver Shamrock launch their own satellite into space? Shouldn't Cochran have just blown up their factory? and wouldn't the signal probably have broken or been, you know, been broken? Shouldn't he have maybe pushed Stonehenge over so it cracked into a billion pieces? And, you know, that might have been part of the whole broadcast as well. Like, I just feel like he could have done a lot more than just call the local news and been like, you know, get it off the air. 
I mean, I agree with that, but I also feel like by the time he realizes what's going on, it's too late to do anything else other than what he does. You know what I mean? He gets tied up and he just, he has to save it however he can. Like, he doesn't have time to find explosives and blow it up. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like he's doing the best he can. He's just, he's literally just a man. He's just a doctor. He's a drunk doctor. Like, the fact that he's able to get as far as he is, it's kind of remarkable. I like how he ends up at the beginning of the movie at the end. So, like, in the beginning, you have the dad run into the gas station, and the guy's like, what's wrong with you, man? And then in this one, like, the doctor runs into the gas station at the end, and the guy's like, then I know you from somewhere, (laughs) because he brought the old man into the hospital. So I really thought that was cool. It was like the guy ended up as crazy as the guy from the beginning. Like, he sort of ends up taking his place in a way. It's just like this cycle of madness. Oh, also, okay, real quick, why are they still making masks an hour or two before the uh, broadcast is going out the silver shamrock factory is like up and running you know making more masks way more than yeah. they need and also i guess the fact that like you know i was gonna say my justification was like oh to sell to the other kids who didn't buy one but i feel like as soon as the, sh- the silver shamrock masks kill every kid who bought one no other parent's gonna buy a mask so like i really don't know it's funny because the movie starts a week before halloween and then it skips there's a title card one hour later which i found extremely charming i thought like that is some balls to put a one hour later title card and then we skip like a whole week I think we were like the 28th or something. Yeah. So like I'm saying like maybe he should have investigated some point during the middle of the week and dragged this out a little, stayed overnight a few days. And like then I could have maybe understood a little better why the factory is still open. You know, it's like the week before Halloween. It's not just the day before Halloween. Um, Marge would be showing up, you know, maybe on a Thursday instead of that Saturday or something. And, you know, he could have just spaced some of this out story-wise a little bit better but you know that's just that's just me that the the movie's so jam-packed trying to pack so much stuff into it anyway that i don't you know i don't really blame its pace okay can we just quickly talk about the bum again can i bring the bum back up do you guys remember that sequence a little bit maybe the most so that to me is maybe one of the scariest scenes in the movie because dr chalice is like walking down an alley drinking some booze and the bum comes up to him and is like can i get a sip and chalice was like yeah of course you can and he shares his booze with the bum uh-huh. and it's like dude he just takes it back and doesn't even wipe it off and takes another swig i was like that is that's to me is the horror <laughs> in this movie. I was like, who is this man? Whoa, jeez. Oh, just a minute. I didn't mean to scare you. I saw that bottle. thought it looked pretty heavy. I, I ain't got no diseases. You mind if I have a drink? Mm. <laughs> ah, damn. Thank you. Hey, uh, just a second. You, uh, you happen to know anything about this Cochrane? Well, Mike, he says he doesn't have any diseases or anything. He does tell him before he takes the bottle. Oh, I totally don't believe that. <laughs> I really like the Cupfners or the Cup, the Cup, the Cupfers. I really like the Cupfers, who is like the number one salesman dad who brought the uh, his whole family along. Oh yeah, I love it, snotty kid. I hate him. Uh, I like the whole tour they go on, and then at the end how they get locked into the room and they become test subjects for the mask and everything and also sort of test subjects for the audience too like we get a chance to see like what actually is going to happen 
Although I guess we sort of see with the misfire, sort of. Yeah, that button's still a bit of a mystery. They, it's adorable how they try and tease that out during the tour as like the final stage of things. And, and then at the end, you realize the final stage is we put some Stonehenge dust on this microchip and <laughs> attach it to some rubber. <laughs> what I do want to talk about is that while they're on the factory tour, we find out some of Cochrane's past inventions, including sticky toilet paper, the soft chainsaw, and the dead dwarf gag? Which, what is that? Like, my mind can understand what sticky toilet paper is. It can understand what a soft chainsaw is. But what is a dead dwarf gag? I'm just going to take a stab at it. You're going to put your garbage out one day, and you open the lid, and inside there's a fake dead dwarf. I mean, I don't think it's funny or clever or anything. I'm just trying to market this shit, basically. <laughs> there's something in the book, because there's so much more in the book with the doctor before the guy even comes in and dies on his table like there's so much more with the doctor but at one point he goes to buy his children their halloween masks and a guy tries to sell him shuttle shoes oh my god they have like the challenger shuttle designs on the side of them which is yikes but um you know this was before that so and then they uh, are apparently just like modern rocket shoes where you just like flip a button and they like are supposed to like shuttle you down the street or something i mean it makes sense that cochran would build a foundation of you know these weird novelty items before rolling out his halloween mask genocide plan you know his final solution yeah he's got to establish you know a silver shamrock as a reputable brand so everyone will buy the mask i think that's that's how he was able to sell so many because he sold rocket shoes and dead dwarf gags and but think of the way he could have taken over the world with all of his like robo technology it's amazing that he settled upon like this whole sort of like turn their children heads into bugs that'll then kill the parents scheme like he's got all this resources and apparently he's been building them up for years and he's got a reputation that like some people actually have heard of him and and all this stuff i'm amazed that he's not on the board of apple or microsoft or something of that degree like they really should have made this guy maybe if they like were to make this movie now he'd be way more of like a, a mogul or something yeah he'd probably be like an elon musk kind of character i mean he's the irish elon musk who doesn't even speak with an Irish accent. Like, what is it? Considering how Irish that town is, how everybody is basically, like, kicking around a pot of gold on their front porch, <laughs> like, it's amazing that Cochran comes out and he just sounds like a normal American dude. But he does. Yeah, maybe he's not from the old country. Maybe he immigrated when he was very young and lost the accent. I want to talk about the uh, test subject mom, who very clearly realizes, I think, something's up and also doesn't give a shit about anything. And, like, she's sort of, like, the, <laughs> the voice of reason in this. Like, she, I don't know that she's drunk, but she's, like, acting like she's drunk this entire thing. Like, she's like, oh, don't ask me. I don't care. Things are off. This is weird. Maybe there's no Halloween next year. And she's, like, essentially right in everything she says, but her husband gives her no benefit of the doubt. And the way that she's portrayed in the movie, it's sort of like she's a crazy person. Like, or just, like, doesn't want to, like, it just it's strange that she is sort of the voice of reason here. Well, it feels like the movie is an attack on the, the values in which that family unit represents. Like, the whole idea that, like, the nuclear family popped up at some point and it's corrupted society. It, yeah, they call it decency, but, like, it's what David Lynch sort of gets into about, like, the dark side of the suburbs and everything. I feel like they're, he's trying to make a comment on that. Like, honestly, like, by bringing these this family in and they're so, like, golly gee whiz and everything's perfect and, like, you know, repress this, ignore that, just keep smiling, like, on with the toy. And then it's at the very end when the dad gets bit by his 
sun snake face creature thing. He like screams to the heavens. He's like, Cochran, you bastard. He's like, you done me in, you liar. I just love that. I, I just think it's it's hilarious that he's actually trying to like do social commentary. And it's super quirky. Like, it's so left field. Like, once they get to that town, like, all these weirdo characters start popping up. And it's like, what the hell is happening? Like, this movie just, like, starts to have a lot of color and, like, life and interesting things start happening. Yeah, that town's one of my favorite things about the movie. It's just so out of time. You know, it's just sort of stuck. Could be anywhere. Yeah, he mentions, like, a factory town. You know, like, in the old days, like, they used to pop up, like, a... uh... You know, like a coal mine used to open up and then a town would like build up around it and everyone would have to go shop at the company store. And, it was, you know, you're sort of like locked into wages, like they'd pay you just enough so that you could buy what you need from the company to live and everything. And it seems like a remnant of that, like everyone used to work at the toy factory and like this is all that's left. Right. I, I wonder uh, like if, if this movie would have I mean, it, it works fine just as it is, but I wonder if it would have worked better in like Pennsylvania where coal mines exist and, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, I think it works fine as it is. I just want to mention quickly about the director again, Tommy Lee Wallace. You know, this is his first movie, but I definitely know him from other stuff. So he directed Max Headroom episodes. Are you guys familiar at all with Max Headroom? Vaguely. I know the name, but I don't know anything more than that. Well, I would implore you guys to at least go check out like the the pilot episode i think there was like a movie or something but it's some really crazy cool sort of like early cyberspace kind of stuff like max headroom is just like an artificial intelligent trapped inside like a computer and he interfaces with like humans and things it's really cool this is my Ma- Ma- max headroom and what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of t- t- television they sort of like riff on it in Back to the Future Part 2 when he goes to the Cafe 80s. Like Ronald Reagan is in Max Headroom sort of style. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fright Night Part 2, if the original Fright Night Part 2. Like great, hard to find movie, but really cool, lots of fun. He directed some Baywatch. And then maybe the, the biggie is the It miniseries from 1990. So this guy, you know, he ended up, you know, he did he did okay. He ended up going on to, to work a lot and, and, you know, come back and do some horror. I mean, that It miniseries, for what it is, is pretty great, you know, for what they were able to get away with, you know, on broadcast television during prime time. Like I had to say, like I've watched, I've rewatched that a few times. Yeah, he also, he directed another sequel to a John Carpenter film. In 2002, they put out Vampires Los Muertos, a sequel to Vampires. So and then he he worked with Carpenter on a couple other things. I know he was a art director on Assault on Precinct Thirteen. He was second unit director for Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, so he's been collaborating with Carpenter for a long time. I like learning that because it makes it, it, it in my eyes it sort of further legitimizes this entry into the franchise series. The idea that him and Carpenter were and are so close and have collaborated so much, and that they collaborated on this together. You know, and like you said, he may have had a hand in writing some of this or just that Carpenter is like yes I like your aesthetic I like what you're going for let's try and shake things up like you're my man and that they continued working together after this too you know that makes me say like no I like what we did like you know like even if people aren't down with it like we pulled something off and we're happy with it like let's go on and, and do some more work together right yeah he's he's been working with Carpenter since Dark Star so you know they go they go all the way back so we're getting to the end here. Before the book club starts, do you guys have any major moments that you'd like to mention uh, that we didn't 
cover or go back and cover again? Well, I think we covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, same. You know, I just love this movie. I think that considering all the all the things they threw at the wall, like there's so many different pieces and ingredients in this stew that it shouldn't work, really, if when you think about it. But for some reason, I'm I'm captivated by it every time I watch it. Agreed. I never can quite remember the sequence and order of events of this movie. Um, every time I watch it, I was like, oh, I thought this happened later. Oh, I thought this happened earlier. So I get great joy out of rewatching this movie. I think I like it the more I see it. Like, I just come to find something new uh, about it every time. And I, yeah, you know, I'm aware of its reputation and you know people can hate on it if they want that's fine that's your opinion and everything but like i'm glad that there's a collective out there like us that can sort of see past that into just that it's purely entertaining like unlike you know it's a it's an original piece of entertainment for yep. sure and like it's definitely in there somewhere unlike other pieces of work so. yeah it's it's my second favorite movie in the halloween franchise yeah i like i like it more than just about any other michael myers sequel all right guys so we're almost done i got a really quick book club today for everybody okay book club is gonna possibly be changing and evolving i mean all things you know change everything change we all grow and evolve and that's a good thing and the show is its own organism and it's doing that too so today i'm going to read to you guys but you know in the future i might try something else where book club becomes its own thing even more so on its own these passages are short i will say quickly about this book it might be one of the worst written novelizations i've read thus far for the series i think part of that comes because it's on the heels of a terrific novelization, which was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. That book is just like, just go read that book as like a book, like as a novel. Don't even, you know, try and not think of the stigma on it, of it being based on a movie or anything. But that was very surprising. And now I'm right back down on the opposite of where I want to be with, with this person. But here we are, Halloween 3 by Jack Martin, the novelization, 228 pages. So this book is very anti-technology. I would go as far as to say racist, like not just against the Irish. It really it really attacks the Irish at points that I'm not going to read, but it also uses the word oriental several times. And so, you know, nowadays that's just problematic. And so like it made me cringe from time to time. But this is a very interesting sort of passage about robots and machines and, you know, the theme of robots and machines in the story. I'm going to start here on page 19. Just like a goddamn machine. That's it, thought Chalice. That's what they want to be these days, as much like machines as they can possibly make themselves. For unfathomable reasons, some people delight in pretending to be as machine-like as law will allow. It's an old story. It goes back to goose-steppers and the whole military mystique. No, it goes further back than that. A lot further. People who act like machines. Machines that imitate people. Cute. Real cute. The height of chic. It's growing all around us. The Fourth Reich. Like smog and inflation. I wonder what it's really about. Oh, boy. Welcome to Book Club, Dan. <laughs> I hope you're... <laughs> so, at least, I mean, no rape, but Nazis. Dude, so much Nazism in this, like, underlying Nazism. It's scary. Like, I don't know if it's in there just to scare the reader or what is going on. Okay, so here's page 57. I found this passage to be pretty cool. So this is Chalice. These are all basically, you know, I'm basically just reading this for the inner monologue of, of Dr. Chalice, the, the drunk 
ass grabber, as it were. So, page 57. He considered himself a rational man, trained as a detective of death in the face of the seemingly irrational, and this was his climate. What happened in the rest of the world might be chaotic, but here, cause and effect were supposed to rule. The problem was that this time, too much of the chaos had broken through. It would no longer be safe here till he could find out exactly what had happened and why. It was important for him, too, for other reasons, which he could as yet only begin to comprehend, but it mattered. Somehow, it mattered more than anything else so this dude it he's really scraping for things to matter to him. <laughs> this, this this reads like a bad pulp detective story oh because i feel like parts of the movie try and get a little like noir detective with it you know like he's a doctor thrown into detective story or something Oh, okay, yeah, so this is, I don't know, okay, I'm just going to read one example, but this is some of the, this is, this is the unflattering sort of, like, this is some of, like, the slight against the Irish in the book. This is just one example that is rampant on page 90. So this is when they roll into town. A few ruddy faces revealed themselves in doorways, some freckled and red-haired, all silently observant. Ellie broke the uneasy silence. Kind of ethnic. You could say that. I feel like a goldfish. Company town, Chalice reminded her. Irish company town. You know where you're going? To the factory. Where are you going? Might be a little too late for that. Why don't we go look for a watering hole? <laughs> I, I have to wonder if, if this novelization had to be, like, if, it, if Tommy Lee Wallace had to sign off on it, or if it was just commissioned and he was never consulted. Because this it seems um, inconsistent with the screenplay in a lot of ways. So it is wildly inconsistent with the movie and to the degree that most of the stuff that Chalice isn't around to observe isn't in the book. So for instance, Marge's death, there's no description of that whatsoever in the in the novelization. The stuff with the family with the little boy, like that is very different. It's very toned down in the book. So like basically all of like the death and murder and stuff is like kind of cut out of the book, which is the first time I've I've really noticed the novelization subtract something from from what was actually on screen you know most of them are just concerned with adding things so it's just really weird how much of this of the movie this book actually removes like you got to see the movie you're missing some of the coolest stuff if you're just reading this yet another reason why this is one of like the worst novelizations (laughs) this is just another piece of uh the internal monologue of dr chalice on page 115 Oh, and he's drunk. That's why I marked this one, because this is him in in a bit of a stupor. Standing there under the stars, Chalice had a drink. They survived, he thought, the slow and the stubborn, the old individualist misfit sons of pioneers who won't allow themselves to be folded, stapled, or spindled. The revolutions come and go. Nations are torn apart and rebuilt. The climate changes to make way for the next millennium. The snow on the wheels turn and the century ices. Men like machines walk on the moon, and machines like men remake the world in their own image. The iron dreams rear its head again in a new age. The old tribes fade from sight in the long night of the human soul. But somehow, the old ways survives. They abide and they prevail. They find a way. <laughs> yeah. This, it sounds like he's got a lot of big ideas he wants to cram into this book, but doesn't have the, um, the chops to, to write it 
well. You know what I mean? And he's getting way off base from the story of the movie. <laughs> like, it's not really about his tortured soul. Like, they really, he also goes heavy into his, not divorce, but his separation with his wife in, like, the first couple chapters. Like, that's that's what you get instead of the dad running around at the gas station clutching the mask and fighting off the robots in the parking lot and all that. Like, none of that's in the book. Like, it's all chalice, like, oh, like, he goes to the bar and tells the bartender, he's like, oh, man, I got to go home to my wife and kids. Like, ugh, like, give me another. Like, he's got to get liquored up to go buy them Halloween masks. I wonder if he had a word count he had to reach. You know, it's it's like... Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. There's actually, there are sort of um, regulations, I guess, when you're writing a novelization, like a certain percentage that you that must be added to the storyline, you know? Right. So how you do that is up to the individual author, though. They can basically tackle it from any direction. All right. So I'm just, I'm going to leave you guys with this final passage because this explains Cochrane's plan a little bit better. Like it actually goes into a little bit more of his motivation. He talks a little bit about what is bothering him and why he's going through all this trouble. So this is on page 192. He's basically asked, you know, why the children? Like, why are you going after the kids? Like, what is the deal? So here we go. Page 192. Tell me one thing first, said Chalice. Why children? Do I need a reason? Oh, I could tell you that they are the easiest prey. And they are. People nowadays no longer listen to them. They provide the easiest entry, the path of least resistance. What better reason from a purely pragmatic view? But they are such irritating little creatures. Don't you agree? You know that you do. Deep down, they are as noisy as wretched sheep and twice as dirty, given to us from out of the filthiest part of woman. And you know what happens to dirty little lambs, don't you, doctor? They are invariably given over to the slaughter. The filthiest part of a woman? Huh. Huh. All right. Uh, yep. So, <laughs> a little bit of insight into the mania of Cochrane. I also sort of like that that doesn't really answer why children. Jesus. Well, it explains, I think it explains why children, but it doesn't explain why, period. You know, like, I don't understand the, the grand scheme, like the whole, the end, the end game. What's the end game for this whole plot? I get why he would target children, easy targets, but I still don't understand what the end game is for this whole thing. Well, I mean, I think the why children is also like we don't like we don't need to know why children. The children, the why of children is because they're the ones who dress up for Halloween. Like we don't need to know the why. You know what I mean? Like that's not of any significance or any consequence. Like it was always going to be children. If it was a Halloween movie, it's always going to be children. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, even in the movie, he asks like, "What's it about?" And Chalice gives him a very vague answer about like, "Oh, it's a ritual." And it's like, okay. And, well, we sacrifice people, all right, but uh, the children, okay, <laughs> like, it's kind of a cop-out, I agree, but yeah, that's, you know, that's what the book, for me, is, like, all about trying to figure out more, like, reading this book, I, I wanted to know, like, is there a more, a deeper answer behind his plot and his plan or anything, and it's, like, kind of not, so, yeah, so, okay, I'm closing the book for the day, book club is closed, thank you guys for uh, sticking around. And that's it. We're officially done for Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Thank you guys for joining me very much. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Joey, anything you'd like to recommend here at the end of the show? I can tell you that in the next 30 days, 
you and I are going to announce two new shows that we're doing, and Joe, too, and I are going to announce one new show that we're doing, so there's going to be a lot there. The program that I will point everyone towards is just came out, the newest episode just came out two days ago, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. If this episode comes out on October 3rd, two days ago, October 1st, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift on Too Fast, Too Forever. Joining me were Chris and Nico from the Now and Again podcast, who are also on your show's Alien 3 episode. They talked about Tokyo Drift. I don't know how it went, because we didn't record it yet, but I'm sure it's great. And Dan, where can we find you? If anybody wants to follow me on Twitter personally, you can follow me at Dan Cologne. Dan, we have plans. You're going to be back hopefully very soon for a couple more horror movies. But yeah, thanks again, guys. Thank you very much for joining me for this episode. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. That does it for today's episode. I gotta thank my guests again for stopping by. Thank you very much to Joey Boo Wendowski and Dan of the Dead Cologne. For more Joey, just go to cageclub.me slash Joey to see a list of all the shows that he co-hosts. I'd say check out the latest hashtag Too Fast Too Forever, where they have Dr. Chris podcasts on from now and again to talk about Tokyo Drift, the third entry into that series and a movie that'll be covered on here one day as well. Check out the Halloween crossover episodes with Real Bad and High School Slumber Party. Don't forget about those. Be sure to check out some other movies with the title Season of the Witch, like the one Nick Cage is in, where he plays Bayman, his worst character. Then go listen to the Cage Club OG episode 64, where Joey and I had on Jordan from Wistful Thinking to discuss Cage as a Knight's Templar that is transporting a supposed witch to some sacred place or other, played by Claire Foy from Unsane. And then you can go check out that episode of Cinemakers with Tobin, etc., etc. The universe is just keeps expanding and it's all connected folks you could also seek out the little known 1973 george romero movie called season of the witch which i've only seen once over a decade ago and really can't recall a thing about it then you can listen to the donovan song season of the witch if you want but that's all the media i'm aware of with that title season of the witch a phrase i still to this day don't quite know what it means be sure to check out the show page for links to things mentioned on this show, which you can find at cageclub.me, along with everything else the network has to offer. All the great shows are just a click away. Go to facebook.com cageclub, cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram, rate, review, subscribe to Third Time's a Charm on iTunes or wherever podcasts live. New show alert. Please be sure to go check out X is for Podcast, an X-Men experience, hosted by Nico from Now and Again, and his rotating roster of super co-hosts as they explore the world of Marvel's most uncanny characters. This show is the network's first comic book-based podcast, and it's a lot of fun. Do you have a favorite X-Men? I liked Havoc a lot, especially with this series Mutant X, where he got trapped in an alternate universe where Madeline Pryor is still the Goblin Queen, and everything's like upside down and topsy-turvy. I'm also a big fan of Scott Summers from the all-new X-Men series as well. It's kind of recent. Him, along with the original five X-Men, were pulled forward in time by Beast for some reason or other. I forget exactly why, but I really like the storyline where young Scott went adventuring across the galaxy with his space pirate dad, Kosair, and his crew, the Starjammers. That was its own book for a minute, if I remember. And I think that was around the time Secret Wars happened and the Marvel Universe got rebooted, and I kind of peaced out, took a break from comics for a while. And I guess I can't get enough of them Summers brothers. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Third Time's a Charm. So until next time, I'm your host, Mike, saying trick or treat. Three, that's a magic number. Yes, Three. it is. It's the magic number. Three, they stubbing me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?